Part 5. Higher Forces Why, then, knowing grace, do you bring stones? Blind hostility only shatters and leaves in ruin the gates of peace that would have opened inward effortlessly. But we all know, civilizations come and civilizations go, and all the while a patient yet unceasing tide digs deeper and deeper holes under unsuspecting, slowly sinking heels. Mind Dance, Jack Hadley Chapter 19 On the northern Panahachel side of the lake, as I mentioned earlier, the main tribe is called the Kachikel. They speak an entirely different language from the dominant tribe on the other side in Santiago Atitlan, the Tsutuhil, and they also wear a distinctively different traditional costume. Each morning just before dawn, for untold centuries, fishermen from the Kachikel have risen and made their way down to the lake. In small dugout cayucos, they paddle out silently to toss handmade nets for fish. Nowadays, some of the men dress in modern shirt and shorts, but at least half of them still go out onto the lake each morning in traditional backstrap pullover shirts and knee-length embroidered shorts. And so it was that on this particular morning, an hour before dawn, thirty or forty, maybe fifty native fishermen were waking up as usual and getting themselves ready to go out on the lake in their solitary one-man cayucos, just to see what the spirit of the lake would bring them this new morning. A light rapping on my door awakened me as well, and I got quickly out of bed and pulled on the tribal shorts and shirt that Francesca had given me the night before. She was waiting for me when I came outside. I followed her up to the main house, where she sat me down and put a Mayan-style long hair wig with a ponytail over my gringo hair and handed me the universal baseball cap native men down here all wear. She applied a bit of makeup to darken my face, plus local sandals, and put my own rolled-up clothes and boots into a native backstrap bag. Then we hurried out into crisp pre-dawn darkness, the soft glow of lingering moonlight touching the top of the lake's thin shroud of mist. Down at the cove, I stepped into the cayuco awaiting me, balanced myself sitting cross-legged in the wobbly little craft, nodded goodbye to Francesca, and paddled out to where the mist soon fully engulfed me. I continued for maybe five more minutes, navigating away from the faint sounds of the shore. Then I stopped paddling, and I drifted. There was no breeze out here at all, utter peace and tranquility. My various senses took in the soft dawn light, the slight motion of my cayuco, occasional birds cawing suddenly as they flew over my head, and the cool breath of the lake air lightly on my cheek. My watch showed eleven minutes to wait, according to Francesca's precision instructions, 
before I'd start paddling over to the Panahachel dock. I tried to think ahead, but ran into a mental wall. I simply had no idea what this morning would bring. Looking to the east, I thought of Bernardo and slipped into remembering his father busting into the cavern with the jade. What was it that El Maestro had said to me? Something basic about being a man. So was I supposed to get tough and macho and go bang heads? The whole situation down here seemed to indicate that humans fixating on being manly wasn't necessarily the best global advice for our species at this point in history. I suddenly remembered that moment in Ursula's lab when my holographic image had turned into Nocalito. I'd actually experienced shifting my sensory consciousness over into that other male body. Well, just what the fuck was that all about? At what level had that bizarre event happened? Were there actually universes within universes ad infinitum, stuffed with pesky quarks and ghostly gluons, magically attracting each other, consciously flirting and repulsing? The entire infinite creation seemed hopelessly caught up in bizarre primary energies and possibilities. And here I was right now, out on this misty lake, and I was just nothing more than one totally insignificant, solitary and confused male creature among three billion other male dudes. All of us right now alive and kicking on this small planet. My watch said 547. The mist was dissolving. I shrugged off the bubble of thoughts and feelings that had engulfed me and started paddling northwest in the direction of Pana Hachel. After a couple of minutes, I could vaguely see the towering Hotel Lago in the distance, and soon the public boat dock became visible off to the right of the hotel. Five people, dressed in native garb, plus a tourist threesome, were waiting to board the early morning mailboat. A few bigger tourist boats were still lying dormant. Following Francesca's detailed instructions, I brought my canoe to shore quietly, about 200 yards down from the dock, and got my stiff bones up and onto dry land. Fuck! An army jeep was driving down to the dock. One of the three military men in the open-top vehicle got out at the dock with a submachine gun held casually as he walked over to talk with some local guy who was probably the driver of the mailboat. I checked my watch. Two minutes to six. I'd have to make my move. Grabbing my native bag, I walked toward the dock, sweating under the thick wipile. The worn sandals hurt my feet, but that was the least of my worries. The government guy turned and looked right at me when I was about a hundred feet from him. Fearing what would happen if I was caught dressed in this disguise and reported to Quemado, I almost panicked and walked away from the dock. But just then, the military guy turned and went back to his jeep. 
Several locals were now walking out onto the dock and getting into the boat. I kept my pace casual, hunched over with the weight of my bag. I don't know why, but I'd brought the round stone I'd picked up at Michael's. With eyes down and baseball cap low, I handed the driver the Quetzal notes I'd been primed with, jumped down into the hold, and took a vacant seat along with half a dozen people sitting fore and aft. The big old engine rumbled into action, and ten minutes later, we were way out on the great lake, roaring steadily across at about ten to twelve knots. From where I was sitting, I could stare directly up at the great Caban, about ten miles off to our left. My eyes roamed over the lower surfaces, covered with mango and orange trees. Higher up were the deep greens of thousands of coffee bushes. Then cultivation ceased altogether as the ascent became boulder-strewn. Nothing but grass tufts grew among the highest lava flows. I closed my eyes and tried to think of what to do when we docked. I couldn't just walk into a totally unplanned future, but really, I had no choice. I'd have to just surrender to whatever came, play it by ear. Like Mahi had once put it, participate, not manipulate. With my eyes now closed, I could sense the presence of the volcano towering above the lake. And again an unexpected, deep calm came over me. And suddenly I found myself not in the boat, but standing high above the lake, looking down from the volcanic perspective watching this tiny boat motoring across the surface of the water. I must have nodded off because I was jolted awake when the steady sound of the engine's drone dropped down as the driver cut the throttle. Half a mile ahead, I saw the large welcoming bay of Santiago Atitlan, a vista even more beautiful than I remembered from my first trip down here. The ancient rock houses and pathways of the town seemed to rise up naturally from the earth itself, ascending through a dozen levels of terraced habitation along the lower slopes of the mountain. The boat approached a rough-hewn dock that extended out into the shallow waters of the bay. Fifteen, maybe twenty cayucos were out fishing inside and out beyond the entrance to the bay, and half a dozen were already pulled up onto a sandy space on the reed-lined shore. Farther over, and up the slope, small subsistence gardens were being worked by men wearing the embroidered purple and white shorts of the Tsutuhil. Near the dock, a dozen women washed clothes on the black rocks where the estuary flowed into the bay. They stood knee-deep in water, skirts tucked into wide backstrap belts. A few had babies on their backs, wrapped tightly in colored Tsutuhil shawls. The mailboat bumped against the pilings. I got up and out, not raising my eyes to look at anyone, 
The chatter of the local language was all around me, but since I was wearing the garb of a tribe from across the lake that didn't speak Sutuhil, I could plausibly ignore everyone. Walking on up the grassy slope toward the entrance to the town, I felt hungry but couldn't risk going into a local cafe for breakfast. Hopefully, Mahi would have some breakfast for me if I managed to connect with her. It was market day in the ancient town square, and already a small crowd of people were busy buying and selling goods from their garden and trees and chicken coops, plus factory-made gringo stuff, shirts and tools and portable stereos and so on. Most of the sellers were Tsutuhil women with blankets spread on cobblestones. There were almost no cars or trucks because most of the streets of the town were too narrow. Only a rough local road connected this isolated town with the outside world. The barter buzz in the air soothed me. I relaxed a few notches as I strolled through this real live native world, still struggling to maintain its sense of sovereignty. I walked past a young Sutihil man who seemed to eye me with a flash of recognition, but he went on and was gone. I bought two bananas, a candy bar, and a Coke, glancing around, expecting someone friendly to come approach me. Then I abruptly changed my direction and headed up a steep cobblestone street away from the center because I'd spotted four Guatemalan army guys walking through the plaza, M-16s in hand, looking carefully at everybody they passed. I found myself walking up one of the many narrow, high-walled, volcanic rock pathways that meander everywhere through the steeply sloping town. My pack felt heavy, the morning sun warm on my head under the wig and cap. The path was a narrow passageway between the stone walls of attached houses with thick wooden doors and shuttered windows. The farther I walked up the steep, narrow path, the better I felt. I kept anticipating Mahi. The path opened into a small, communal courtyard, and I sat down on a crude bench under a mango tree, took off the sandals, and put on my socks and trusty hiking boots below my kechikal shorts. I'd seen native men wearing tennis shoes and old hiking boots with their native garb, and the boots felt good, somewhat giving me back my personal identity. Letting my feet walk where they wanted, I went on up the rock-walled walkway, and right at that moment, I was hit from behind, my arms grabbed strongly from either side, and my pack ripped from my back. Two strong men lifted me off the ground, while a third man opened a nearby door. I was pushed hard into a walled courtyard and went sprawling painfully onto the ground. A tall gringo towered over me, dressed in Levi's and long-sleeve cowboy shirt, taller than me by a couple inches, hair long and tied back. He pointed to a hovel dug right into the mountain. Get moving, he ordered in English. I had to duck my head going under the doorway into a small stone room. A bare light bulb hung from the ceiling. 
I stopped about three feet inside, but the American guy pushed me on into another room, which was a little more than a cave, then around a corner into a narrow passage, beginning to realize that I was very possibly walking to my execution rather than toward Mahi. I spun around, refusing to go farther. Fuck it, what's going on here, I said in Spanish. You, the guy said back in English, will tell me what's going on. Get going, there's people waiting. I'm not going any farther, I told him. The man raised a knife. Fine with me. Up ahead, a gruff female voice called out something I didn't catch. The American made a move with the knife at my stomach, and I felt the sharp point poke against my skin. I assumed by now that something had gone wrong, that these guys worked for Wingster or Kemado. Not wanting to get further punctured, I moved on. The tunnel narrowed, went fifty or sixty feet under naked bulbs, and then turned a corner. Up ahead, I could see a doorway with light beyond it. I walked on into a big room with black round lava walls. There were three people in the room, not counting me and the gringo jerk. He came in right behind me, swung a heavy metal door closed, and slammed its bolt securely into place. Two lamps lit the room, which was about fifteen feet by twenty, with a high arched stone ceiling. There was a low stone altar against one wall, a thick rectangular wool rug in the middle, and a few things under a tarp. I couldn't tell what. Two young Sutuhil men stood as if awaiting orders, and a very old Indian woman, skinny and short of stature, her face drawn tight but her eyes sharp, was sitting cross-legged on a pad in a rounded corner of the room. I could see a second door that led into another dark tunnel. If I had a chance to grab one of the lanterns and run into the blackness, I might possibly escape. As if picking up on my intent, the woman met my eyes. She didn't scowl at me. She didn't smile. She just calmly engaged me with her eyes in a way that made my breathing relax a couple notches. There was something somehow familiar about her. But just then I saw movement to my side and caught the American guy coming at me. I held my ground, but all he did was start frisking me roughly for a weapon. I felt angry and scared stiff at the same time. He was the kind of guy who could hurt you bad fast and not bother about what he'd done. He looked over to the old woman. We can't trust him, he told her in gringo Spanish. He was over there all day yesterday. He's working for them. Mahi's a fool. She looked calmly back and forth from him to me. Mr. Hadley, she said to me in Spanish with a strong local accent. Do you speak this language? Yes? Si pues, I said in same. Then tell me honestly... Are you, in your heart, serving Bernardo or Mahalena? I'm not serving anybody, I said. But if you ask me whose side I support, uh, that's obvious. Mahi. 
He's lying, the American grumbled. Timothy, quiet now, she ordered. And out with all three of you, please. Juanito and I wish to be alone. But he could, I said, out. They outed, closing the metal door with a bang. There ensued a deep, hollow silence in the room. Then, after a few breaths, the elderly woman rose from her sitting position with an alacrity that surprised me and walked a bit bent over to slide the bolt and lock the door. Then she returned and sat back down on her mat. Come over here, sit, she offered. So I went and sat cross-legged on the rug about four or five feet from her. Listen, I said, I'm not lying. Yes, I know that. What's your name? I asked her. I am called Abierta. Ah, you were Ralph's wife, or, um, you two had a child, Michael. She sat there silent for what seemed like several minutes, as if she was slipping into trance or some senile episode. But then she inhaled deeply and sighed. Yes, she said. And that makes you Ma's grandmother, I went on. She smiled the first smile I'd seen come over her gaunt face. Most surely, she said. But that American guy, Tim, I went on, he's bad news. Last week, she told me, one of Timothy's deep friends was murdered by the police in Solola. Also, Tim is hopelessly in love with the woman who has now chosen you instead of him, the woman he has served for four dangerous years. He is also certain that you are a traitor. During times such as these, everyone is in turmoil. Everyone except you, I pointed out. Oh, yes, she replied with a slight sideways grin that showed an entirely different side of her. As one grows older, the raw animal impulses become less ignited. This is both a blessing and a loss. But now, allow me to formally welcome you to Santiago. It is a genuine pleasure, but not an entire surprise, to receive you here. She was looking at me now with definitely mischievous eyes. Mahi, she said, she went north from this very room with my blessing, seeking you. I just sat there, not responding. Actually, my mind was blank. I couldn't process those particular words at all. Um, well, we did run into each other, I said. She seems to be a very good stalker. So tell me, did she get back okay yesterday? Yes, she told me, and with the phallus. But we have had no time for ceremony, so I have not focused upon the peace. Mahi is bringing it any moment now. Who can say, perhaps after all, the ancient forces are again moving through us hopefully working toward the higher good with us. What is your opinion, Juan? Um, about what? 
about the jade phallus, the ancient spirits. Well, all I can say is that after what I've been through down here, I'm not at all sure I want any of those ancient spirits or whatever they might be. Both sides, Bernardo and Michael, seem to be just slightly off the mark. But of course, she burst out, why else on earth would Mahi have to go all the way into the heart of another culture to find her ballast? She stood up and walked over to the door, sliding the latch open just as I became aware of the sound of muffled footsteps. My pulse jumped thirty points. Mahi? The door opened and in walked an energetic girl of around ten or eleven, holding a wooden tray with food and drink and carrying a pack on her back. She smiled a wide-lipped, bashful smile at me, let her big eyes look right into mine for just a glance, then knelt in front of me, placing the tray carefully on the rug. The old woman slid the latch closed again, locking the three of us securely inside the mountain. Juanito, she said to me softly, this is Lucita. I nodded to the girl and gave her a smile, but she was now eyeing me with uncertainty. Lucita, the old woman said, come, touch him. He is only human. The girl didn't move. Do as I say, Abierta insisted. The girl inhaled sharply, then reached out and touched me on my forearm and pulled back instantly. There, Abierta said very gently to the girl, I told you, he is flesh and blood, just like me, just like Mahi, just like you. Lucita scowled. She retreated over to the far corner of the room and sat down. Abierta turned to me. I was only the age of this girl here when the jade icon first came to me in my dreams, she said. Six months later, the piece was found in the lake. Those boys had no idea what they'd found. And so the carving went off to England. Fate, the gods... Who can say why things move as they do? Now the sacred stone has returned, and traditionally there is required only the ceremony and certain other necessary actions, and finally my childhood vision shall be complete. And you, Juan, you are part of this vision. No, I told her honestly. All that Noclito thing. Sorry, but I don't accept any of that old-time occult stuff. All true acceptance, she went on. The direct knowing. This comes into being not from the mind, but through your entire being, through high heart awareness. I myself was guided to leave the old path, back when I was that girl's age. The decision came to me because I could already slightly perceive something new arising. None of us can yet see what, and each of us every moment is free to choose 
and also perhaps to open and be guided. You are similar to myself, to Mahi, because you have chosen not to continue with the old. Your choices have brought you here. Now you must choose one more time. She reached forward, picked up one of the two thick, hand-blown glasses on the tray. Choose whether or not to drink this, she said to me, her tone definite but entirely non-committal. I took the shallow glass, stared down at the liquid. It was a green color and thick. Look to your breathing, Abierta said to me. Look to the high heart. I aimed my attention down deep into my torso, and then looked again at the glass. Without question, I knew the liquid in the glass was heading down my throat. I quaffed the stuff before any thoughts could deter me. Gah! It was bitter than sin, as Grandad would say. And now, the old woman went on, but only if you so choose... Drink this. She handed me the other glass. I brought the glass under my nose to look down at its reddish liquid. I inhaled the raw scent, then calmly and with an inner certainty put the glass down. So you have chosen, Abierta told me, picking up the glass I had refused to imbibe, not to drink the potion that Alejandro and all the endless generations of Tsutuhil masters before him have consumed in order to transform their personal power, to boost their ability to manifest and dominate. Instead, you have imbibed the potion that preserves and purifies and renews wisdom. With this choice, Juanito, you have surrendered a certain masculine strength. In exchange, you shall gain a softer power to accept what is, to love without comparing or judging, to act from the heart without forethought. The Female Path A la Nueva She stood up abruptly. You are now ready, she told me, to walk the volcano's pathway. Go now with Lucita and experience the dark inner universe from which all creatures spring. Let it now swallow you just as you have swallowed it. But wait, Mahi, I said, where is she? She is now coming, but along another way. Your challenge is to remain spontaneous and allow spirit to act through you. There are always risks on the edge, but having looked deep within your soul, I shall now go with you each step of your way. I grant you, Juanito, my full blessing. And now, Lucita, you shall take this man to discover our shared fate. Just then, we could hear footsteps coming down the tunnel outside. The girl looked quickly to Abierta, got a nod, and hurried over to open the metal door. An instormed, 
the American guy with his swinging ponytail and hidden knife. There was word just now, he said, catching his breath. She's okay. She should be here in twenty minutes. They said she's just behind them, coming from San Pedro. Bueno, Abierta said calmly. Thank you, Timothy. Please stand guard. Bring her in immediately when she arrives. You can go now. And Lucita, we shall shift and endure this delay. Please wait in the front room for her. And then the metal door clunked shut. Lock it, the old woman said to me, and come sit a bit closer. I see so poorly these days. We shall spend this waiting time together, you and I, and as we wait, we can meditate and we can talk.